they say that from everything that seems a disaster, probably most of the time, it's your fortune. And uh, L only started, I lasted uh, three and a half issues. But in those issues, I worked with Stephen Meisel, Lindbergh, Mats Gustafsson, Nick Knight, Andrew Bettles, lots of people that became superstar after. And uh, I think it was an amazing experience. But I think uh, the fact that I was fired was very good for me. Opened me a new perspective in life. Carla Cesani is a luminary of the fashion industry. Born in the northern Italian city of Mantua, she worked as a magazine editor for two decades before opening Galleria Carla Cesani in a converted garage in Milan's Corso Como. The project has evolved into a Milanese institution. 10 Corso Como is a gallery, fashion concept store, roof garden, cafe and bookshop. It now has offshoots in New York, Seoul, Shanghai and Beijing. Suzani applies the rigour of an editor to her work as a retailer and curator. Like a very good magazine, a visit to 10 Corso Como is always an exploration, a surprise, an immersion in art, culture, texture and ideas. It's a gentle, cerebral retail philosophy that encourages the intersection between fashion and the visual arts. In 2016, Carla launched Fondazione Suzani to further these aims. I'm Sophie Grove and I'm pleased to say Carla Cesani joins me here in Paris on The Big Interview. Carla, it's wonderful to see you in Paris here for The Big Interview. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. Now, I talked in the introduction about your discerning eye, your role as an editor, curator, retailer, but I want to really find out where that came from. Going back to your childhood in, in Mantua in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, tell me about life in a Suzani household. Well, our parents were very oriented into art and beauty and architecture, but they were very strict when it came to education. So my sister and me, we grew up wearing the same clothes for years and years, gray flannel skirt, pleated, men's shoes, and a little pale blue top. And this went on and on until we were about 18. And in the time we were going to the nuns' school, where there was also uniform. So I think our passion for fashion grew a lot from the fact that we couldn't wear any fashion. Yeah, this austere uniform at home and in the convent. Both. But at the same time, there was an amazing openness when it came to culture. So every Sunday, we would go to a new church, not for religion, but for art. And uh, all the time, our parents were taking us to another town, another city, to see more churches, more museums, more art. And I think probably this, which at the time was quite difficult for us, you know, because I mean, we wanted to do other things than just go all the time to look at museums. And you say that fashion was something of an escape. Do you have any memories of, you know, that first deviation from the uniform, that first kind of coveted item? Of course, of course, of course. Pucci was a bigger discovery. I remember we used to... Because as the education was very strict, we were paid some money only if we were good at school. 
So if we were good at school, we could go and buy what we wanted. So we were extremely good. And Pucci was the place where I used to go all the time and buy the most colorful clothes, of course. And my father used to get very upset. But then I went with him to Paris. I came with him to Paris. And I remember he bought me a beautiful Courage outfit. I must have been 16. Very, very beautiful in yellow bright yellow and vinyl <laughs> that's a real departure from the grey flannel <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes Pucci and Courage was colourful happy now we'll come back to your your sort of entry into the publishing world in, in Milan but I wanted to ask you about really what you're, you're known for at the moment which is Ten Corso Como and how that all came about because it's an incredible Milanese institution with so many wonderful expansions you've opened in New York recently with a huge footprint down in Seaport but I wanted to kind of take you back to the to the origins of that project tell me about why you opened Ten Corso Como and the Galleria Carlo Cesani in the first place well in uh, you know I was an editor in magazines from 68 to 87 when I got fired from Italian L. And uh, then I decided I would never go back to magazines. And that was it. So I opened the gallery because this is what I knew the best. I think, you know, grew up with photography and uh, art and beauty and design. And I thought to open a gallery would be for me the best way to express and to show people what I liked and to share with people. So I started with a gallery and a little publishing company to make books. And then a the year later, of course, I needed fashion. So I opened uh, the store. I didn't really realize well what it meant to go from a magazine to a living magazine, which I wanted to do. And uh, I didn't have a very good sense of business or nothing of that. I just wanted to to have a place where people would come, be a destination for people to come and share ideas. So I thought instead of having pages, I will have corners in the store, and instead of having uh, text, I will be racks and tables. So I made my own magazine this way. I understand that you hoped it might have a sort of social function rather modelled on you know, the Italian piazza. There's a feeling of eclecticism, but also people meeting and a bit of self-discovery going on. Well, at the time, you have also to think, 91, 90, La Gallery, 91, the store. There was no Google, there was no communication in that sense. All what we have today didn't exist. So as an editor for many, many years, I had no idea the people who were looking at the magazines I was doing. There was no feedback, really, except letters to the editors. So the fact to be able to communicate immediately, to have a feedback, also to look at people, it was for me was just incredible. And still today, I believe this is the best way of communication. And I read that when you first opened the Galleria, Carlo Susani, you know, your focus was photography, but you, 
you didn't feel that photography was recognised, certainly fashion photography was recognised as an art at that time, it was 1990, but do you think that was a challenge for you as a gallerist? Well, I definitely was not considered art in Italy. In, in New York or London, more, there were people collecting photography, but not in Italy at the time. Well, I think it was a challenge, but at the same time, I thought this is what I had to do. I don't know. It was like my way of uh, communication. Now, after almost 30 years, we did, I don't know, almost 300 exhibitions, and uh, I don't regret uh, any second of that, you know. Tell me about the philosophy of the store, because it feels like it's trying to break down the walls between, for instance, art and fashion and retail. You have this sort of incredibly hybrid sort of feeling when you walk into the store. It's not, there isn't this siloed cultural thing you find so often. It's taking retail to a completely different sphere. I wonder, was that an objective at the beginning or has that evolved in the three decades you've been open? No, I think it was always this way because I was not a retailer. Actually, I have no idea what it meant to sell because I was always only in magazines, which is very different from... uh, It's all about editing at the end, what I always did, which I'm still doing. And the only thing I think I know that I really know what to do is editing. And I think this is very important for the people who come because they know it's authentic. I think, I hope, this is what people feel. You know, it's not a marketing, Tenkosukom is not a marketing invention. It came from my experience, from my passions, and uh, still is. And uh, at the time, I wanted to do what I used to say, slow shopping, because uh, what is today, which is so much consumption today, but even in the 90s, consumption was very, very strong. Now, we don't remember. But I remember I used to think we have to stop this running to buy. You remember? Was Barbara Kruger? I shop there for I am. Yes, this was the eighties already. <laughs> you know. Already in the nineties I saw this was too too much and it was time to slow down a little bit and enjoy what uh, you were buying or what you were looking at. So I remember I put the chairs everywhere in the store so people could sit and take their time. I put chairs at the cashier and people didn't understand why they had to sit to pay or they had to wait for uh, the packaging. And then slowly the people who were coming, they understood that uh, we don't really, the privileged people don't need so much. They already have a lot. But what you need is the pleasure to, to give a present to somebody you love or to buy a present for yourself. And to do this, you don't need to rush. And your collaboration with artists has been really important to how Corsacoma has evolved, particularly Karl Rook, who's your partner, whose amazing graphics are really the identity of, of the brand. Um, how important was he in, from the beginning? That was really from the very beginning, because when I changed my life from magazines to the gallery and then Corsucomo, I didn't want to call the place with my name, because I thought I had the gallery, for me that was enough. So Chris is American. So we were in a cafe with a glass of wine, 
and he started to design the logo. And of course, being American, he put the 10 in front of the address. And he started to do all the circles. Then he sent me a fax from New York to see if I liked it. And that's how we started. And he did everything. He's a great artist, but what I like about his art is also that he's, he's very generous. He doesn't see art just for something that you watch on the wall so you don't touch, but to put in real life. So he designed everything, you know, himself. Uh, most of the pieces there are handmade, and this is what gives uh, real. And it has a very tactile... His style is quite botanical. There's a sort of natural element to yes. his work, which gives kind of life to the store for someone who hasn't been. No, it, it's, it's real. It, you know, the difference between artisan, artist, craftsmanship doesn't exist. You know, it's what is important that things are real and they're not sterile. Now, you talked about your change of direction, this life that you... You left in publishing to become a, a retailer and gallerist, but I want to take you back to that time and, and just find out really, firstly, what was your sort of first foray into the publishing world in, in Milan? How did you find yourself in that crazy world of 1970s no, magazines? 1968, because I was going, at the time I was living a lot in London, and I came back, and I was in Milano, the university at Bocconi. And I remember I came back with a beautiful pantsuit, very beautiful. I went to the university, and they took away the documents from me because a woman was not allowed at the university with pants. 67, 68. Then this was the 68 revolution, you know, famous. I was not so interested in politics. And I went to Sardinia with a friend of mine, and uh, Porto Rotondo had just opened. And my father sent a telegram, you know, at the time, come back, you're stupid, what are you doing there? So I came back, and my mother had a friend who had a publishing company of fashion magazines. But uh, I would say from uh, children to cuisine to haute couture, to patterns. So I had the most amazing experience there because I was going from the haute couture in Paris or Rome to do uh, food pictures. It was a great thing. I think maybe some of the Tankers Como idea of mixing everything might also have come from that time because I was doing uh, very different uh, fields. What was your transition from from the Vogue house to Elle, because you launched Elle for those first amazing three issues. Well, the difference was I wanted to do Elle because at Vogue was only fashion. And at the time, I thought that to be able to do a magazine where you had art, traveling, food, everything all together was an amazing experience, a new world. Of course, uh, not everybody thought I could do it. And in fact, like Toscani, who told me I could never do it because I was bourgeois and vogue girl. And in fact, probably the L I did was a little bit too aesthetically high. But today I'm very proud that uh, there are collectors' issues. Yeah, you achieved everything. You 
you wanted to creatively. I wanted to ask you about a rather intriguing period where your sister Franca, who was very brave and brilliant editor, was was working in the same building you were editor of, of some of the Vogue titles, and she was editor of Louis. Tell me about that time, this wonderful double act working in the same building. No, it was everybody was making fun of us. They said, this is the Suzani building, and we were on the one floor up each other. And we had in common all the studios and, uh, and lots of people working for both of us. And then Franca was uh, very good in discovering photographers, Bruce Weber. At the same time, so I started to also work with Bruce. Oh, Franca started, I remember when she sent me to New York to meet Steven Meisel. Steven started to do work for Lay, the magazine. And I was working with her Brits for the children or with Deborah Turberville and Sarah Moon, Mappeltorp, and Franca was working with Lindbergh, he was working with Roversi, and then also she was working with Roversi. I mean, we were also exchanging lots of information, and uh, we had a great time together then. It's amazing to think of the two sisters who were brought up in flannel, matching flannel. <laughs> I know. And these great innovators in, in the fashion scene at that time. I mean, I'd like to ask you about your sister because she was such an amazing woman and recently deceased, so it must be so sad for you. But I wondered, actually, did you work together very, very closely and, and what's her legacy been for you? We, we were not working, well, I said when we were in this Zani building, we always, our life was always parallel, but uh, we were never discussing work. But every Sunday we had lunch with our mother and we were talking, talking, talking between us. And my mother used to say, why do you have lunch with me if you talk all the time together? We always had so much to share. I think her legacy for me, it's incredible will. She had an incredible will, Franca. Since she was a child, super, super small. Even at three years old, she was very determined. And uh, she was incredibly courageous, you know. She tackled a lot of issues in Vogue Italia, like oil slips and war and incredible taboo subjects, in fact. No, she was super strong, and this in her work, in her life. She was a good example, my little sister. We spent 66 years together. And you've talked about the sort of creative destruction of, of being eventually sacked from from editing El Italia, this moment. It's interesting that you took that as a sort of badge of honour and a moment to change. Can you tell me about that as a formation to who you eventually became? Well, I think uh, from, uh, they say that from everything that seems a disaster, probably most of the time, it's your fortune, you know. And uh, L only started, lasted uh, three and a half issues, which was very, very close. But in those issues, I worked with uh, Stephen Meisel, Lindbergh, Mats Gustafsson, Nick Knight, Andrew Battles, lots of people that became uh, superstar after. This was 86. And... uh, I think it was an amazing experience, but I think uh, the fact that I was fired was very good for me. Mm, Opened me a new 
perspective in life? I think all the best people have been fired at some point. Well, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. For sure, I was. <laughs> Let me ask you about... We've talked about your relationship with some of these amazing photographers, but you also started your own collection of photography quite early on, uh, which is very intriguingly not just fashion. You have, you know, the portraits of August Sander in there. You have Moriyama. It's, it's a really comprehensive and very beautiful set of work, mainly black and white. How did you go about collecting? And tell me about some of, some of the, the pieces that you really cherish. Well, I started collecting without realizing I was collecting. You know, for me, those were memories of my life. As I started in 68, I was very fortunate. I was working with Guy Bourdain and other people, Alfa Castaldi, the husband of Anna Piaggi. And uh, I started buying things that I liked and put on a side because they represented part of my life. All years, years later, when Azadin Alaya asked me to do an exhibition here, I said, but I don't have a collection as a dean. I only have memories, souvenirs, you know. So we asked the director of a museum in Paris if he would uh, edit. And then he said that, yes, I had a collection. That's how I realized. Yeah, I never thought of it. You know, I thought, uh, oh, this represents something important for me. Let me talk to you about... Um we're here in Azadine Elias' headquarters, and it strikes me as a very, very important relationship for you and something that was really a, a strong force in your life. Tell me about meeting Azadine and, and his impression on you. I came to meet Azadine in Paris because I was working at Vogue at the time, and we did a story on him. I didn't know him. But I was working with an editor, Forel, and she said, we have to do a story on this amazing couturier. As I did at the time, was not doing ready to wear. So we did. I got, uh, of course, the advertising department got very upset because six pages on an unknown designer, not advertising, was not possible. So I came to Paris to meet him. And uh, he said he wanted to do a dress for me. And he started to take the measurements. And I would say, yeah, perfect, perfect. Me, yeah, I felt so beautiful. Then he came here and he said, oh my God, what a Mediterranean shape you have. And then On the hips. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> yes, but we started to laugh. And then I thought, uh, I don't know, we never left each other. Then he came to Portofino with his dogs. And my daughter and him, they looked alike very dark hair, curly, the two of them. I don't know, we, it was a friendship that uh, became family immediately and he stayed all the rest of our life, his life, 40 years. That's wonderful. I mean, he was such a formidable character. I wondered, just reflecting on his biography, his story, he came from really an unknown kind of background. He came from Tunis and arrived in Paris with virtually nothing and built this incredible empire. Do you think that's a story we're seeing today? Is that possible today? What's changed in fashion? Well, today, it's, I don't know. I think everything is possible. You, you can't never say no. Because even the time when Azadine came, he had no papers, no money. 
There was the Algerian war. It was, it was his talent, only his talent that brought him where he arrived and his determination, of course. You know, and I think today it's possible. The talent has to be recognized. Probably the, what's going on today that uh, in fashion, there are too many, how do you say, CEO who think they know better than the designers. And this is bringing uh, a big confusion in the, in the system. And I, I read that you, that you said that fashion is a kind of mood and a spirit of freedom and a way to explore who we, who we truly are. I think it's quite a wonderful interpretation of, of fashion. So, so often it seems something rather commercial. I wonder if that's something that, that retailers almost forgotten and something we need to reclaim in the, in the fashion world. Okay, freedom is at the base of everything. Also, don't forget, I was in London when freedom in clothes started, you know, with Mary Quant and all this. And it was really like a, an amazing discovery. And for years and years, you know, we enjoyed that freedom and became even more free. And I don't know why today we want to lose this beauty of, uh, of freedom that uh, was uh, difficult to achieve. And I want to ask you, I mean, you've, you've ruminated on the state of fashion a little bit, but about retail, because, I mean, arguably we're, we're reaching a really a bit of a crisis point in retail, just kind of quotidian shops certainly in Italy are struggling and some of these, these mono brands are struggling for character against the online world. I wondered, do you have any thoughts on, on where and how retail should sort of go in, in order to revive and save kind of bricks and mortar? I don't know. I think, uh, you know, today, but already for many years, there are two ways of shopping. Very fast, you go online, it's a service, or very, very slow, and you go, you want to live an experience. Because uh, I don't believe that uh, the physical places can disappear because we need to meet people, we need to interact. It's the human nature. You don't want to stop or close yourself in a room, buy online, and then don't live. I think people need to live. So I think it's a temporary situation and... Uh, it's important to, to give an experience, to be authentic. And I think people, uh, people love to live. They love to meet each other. They love to talk to each other. I mean, it's a big difference to watch somebody in the eyes and talk and just text. No? I don't think technology cannot change life. can make life easier, maybe a service. Because the human warmth that you, you get from yeah, buying something in, in a wonderful environment is really unreplaceable. I mean, even if you're talking about buying a loaf of bread, it's still the same principle. Well, of course, if you go, there is a great place in Paris for bread that I love to go. The smell of the bread, I mean, there is not... The screen cannot give you this. Or the touch of a fabric or... Or the flowers, I don't know. You, you cannot substitute. They're, in my opinion, they can live very well together. They're just two different. What I think is difficult, it's in between. You know, I think either or, or experience, or fast or slow. 
I have a problem to understand what it can be in the middle. I mean, we're talking about legacy, memory and, and all these things. For yourself, I wondered, what do you hope to achieve with all of your different projects? When you look back at it all, what's the goal? What's the, what's the thing that you really want to achieve? What I wanted, I don't know, because my life was always... Uh, I was always doing something else that I... I love so many different things. What I want to do in the future, now that it's 51 years that I work in different fields, the gallery, the, the retail, I was lucky to have seen fashion from all the different facets, you know, which is quite rare, from retail, uh, creation, and uh, journalist. I think I want to create a kind of Tenkosokombo Academy where I can uh, not teach but give what I know to the younger generations because I think at this point for me it's the time of giving. Thank you so much, Carla Cesani, for joining me on The Big Interview. Thank you. My thanks to Carla Susani. To hear more from her, join us next week at the Monocle Quality of Life Conference in Madrid, where she'll be talking about the future of retail along with some other stellar speakers. That's it for this season of The Big Interview. We'll be back next autumn. Make sure to subscribe to never miss an episode. The Big Interview was produced by Hyolin Goffin. Special thanks on this series to our studio team, Cassie Galpin, Kenya Scarlett, Jack Dewars, Nora Howell, Christy Evans, Sarah Miles, Bill Lutey, George McDonough, Nathan Cooper, and David Stevens. I'm Sophie Grove. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>